Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We are continuing our Tulip series. Um, we're getting very close to wrapping it up. And the next couple sections will be significantly shorter than the previous. Because they they logically follow from the rest of the systems we're discussing. And so, uh, today we are talking about the atonement, its extent and otherwise. I'm not sure how much, I don't know if we're going to get to both the Calvinist and Arminian position in this episode, so we're just going to kind of go with it. But let's begin with our introduction with uh, misconceptions and agreements between the two systems. Um, In many ways, the discussion on the atonement will be easier than our previous discussions. And I know that seems kind of strange because um, this is really where a lot of battles are fought. But again, what we'll find is that the position on the atonement logically follows from the other aspects of these systems. Now, this episode will be a little bit more heavy on the Calvinist side uh, because there are different conceptions of limited atonement and different positions in Calvinism, and there's more uniformity for Arminians on this point. Um, Furthermore, like with predestination, we're going to focus on the positive cases for each position and less on the polemics unless they're absolutely necessary. While our key distinction between Arminianism and Calvinism will be highlighted below, it's important to discuss the misconceptions and agreements between the two first. I like highlighting the agreements. So the first point of agreement between Calvinists and Arminians is that the atonement is always limited in its application. The debate on whether or not the atonement is universal or unlimited or limited is not a debate on whether or not the atonement is applied to every individual leading to universalism. But rather, the question is, when Christ died, who did he die for? In both positions, the application of the atonement upon the elect is linked to those who exercise faith. And so, while, while Calvinists will critique universal or unlimited atonement and stating that it implies or logically leads to universalism, Arminians simply do not agree. They hold that the atonement was unlimited in its extent, but limited in its application. Um, generally, both Calvinists and Arminians agree that universalism, that is the idea that all people will be saved, is heresy. This is to say that in both systems, there is a sense in which the atonement is limited, but it is limited in different measure. Um, another point that needs to be stressed is that in literature, Arminians are usually labeled as holding to A, a governmental theory of atonement, and B, a rejection of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Now, we spoke to point B uh, in previous discussions, and since our discussion is limited to classical Arminianism, it is sufficient to say that some Wesleyan Arminians may reject the imputation of Christ's righteousness and justification, but Reformed or classical Arminians do not. Jacob Arminius and the Remonstrants held to the typical Reformed doctrine of imputation, which was carried along by the English General Baptists. In regards to the former point, that is that Arminians hold to a governmental theory of atonement, opposed to um, penal substitutionary atonement, Matthew Pinson states the following, quote, Contrary to popular belief, Arminius did not teach a governmental view of atonement, despite the fact that so many subsequent Arminians have. Instead, he held to the reformed view of penal substitutionary atonement articulated in the Belgic and Heidelberg Catechism. And he goes on to explain Arminius's view, and that's in 40 Questions about Arminianism. But in short, that for reformed Arminians or classical Arminians, they don't necessarily hold to a governmental theory, but hold to a penal substitutionary view. So this is to say that if you're if you're speaking to an individual, make sure you clarify before you just say, oh, well, you hold to the governmental theory of atonement. Um, 
Of course, some people don't even know what that is, so that's neither here nor there, because that's not really our focus. Our focus is on the extent of the atonement. <laughs> so the question is, did Christ die and atone only for the sins of the elect, or did he die for every individual in the whole world? Another way to frame this is, was the intent of the atonement to save only the elect or to provide salvation for all? So let's go ahead and go into the Arminian position on the atonement. Now, logically following the Arminian conception of the human will, universal prevenient grace, um, comes this position of a universal or unlimited atonement. Again, limited in application, not in its extent. The Father is drawing everyone, the Son died for everyone, and the Holy Spirit is calling everyone to salvation. Now, because God desires all to be saved, a provision must be provided for that to be possible, and thus Christ died for the sins of everyone, and that application of atonement is limited to those who do not resist grace. Now, a Calvinist critique is that God had the Son die for everyone, including those whom God foreknew would reject him before the foundation of the world. And Arminians would say, well, this is to maintain the free offer of the gospel to everyone. There has to be a real offer and provision for everyone, and you can tell that it's slowly moving from a discussion on the atonement to call, right? The general call versus a particular call. And that's going to come up again later. Um, so Arminians will point out that there are no texts of scripture that point to the notion that Christ died only for the sins of the elect. And instead we'll say that there are simply no texts for the Calvinists to bring to the table. Instead, the Arminian will simply point to a number of texts that indicates that Jesus died for all or for the whole world, which are texts for Calvinists to wrestle with in their framework. Um, we can survey these texts very briefly uh, from the Armenian perspective. First, in John's literature, we have the world is emphasized because it is often used to indicate the unbelieving world in contrast to those who believe. So we find this universal love of God whenever we consider texts like John 3.16, where it says that God loved the world. But at the same time, John in 1 John 5.19 will say that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So there's a clear distinction, but we read that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, also, the prior to John 3.16, you have Moses with the lifting of the bronze serpent in verse 14, where this serpent is provided for everyone in Moses' presence, but it's only applied to those who would look at it, but it's still provided for everyone. Furthermore, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. And John will call Jesus the Savior of the world in a handful of texts. But 1 John 2.2, 2, uh, which is a particular um, battleground on the subject, states, quote, He is the propitiation for our sins, but not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, end quote. So Arminians will reject the conception put forward by Calvinists that world often designates all kinds of people. And they'll point to these texts that defines the world as those who lie in the power of the evil one, uh, such as 1 John 5.19. The Armenian will also point to texts such as Hebrews 2.9 that states that Christ, quote, tasted death for everyone, end quote. And Armenians will point out that in 2 Peter 2.1, false teachers are bought by the Lord, that is, being atoned for, but ultimately they are lost. So the universal atonement makes possible salvation for everyone, but it is only actualized when individuals accept it through repentance and faith. Now, this is challenged by Calvinists in a number of ways, but two that we're going to highlight um, so we don't get too bogged down in polemics are, are as follows. First, Calvinists will say 
that Arminians limit the power of the atonement and that there are a number of individuals that Jesus died for that he ultimately fails to save. They will add to this, pointing out that the universal atonement is needless when God foreknows who will choose him before the foundation of the world. Therefore, why have the Son die for those who will not choose him? Second, Calvinists will often note that the sin of unbelief would be atoned for on the cross for every individual in universal atonement, logically entailing universalism, and that unbelief is the sin that keeps people from being saved. Put another way, if Christ died for everyone in the same way for all of their sins individually, and part of that sin is unbelief, and unbelief is what keeps them from being saved, then their unbelief was atoned for, and therefore everyone would be saved. Now, the Arminian would respond to point one by saying that the Calvinist makes a false conflation of the atonement accomplished and the atonement applied. And to the latter point, Arminians will point out that there needs to be an active apprehension of faith and union with Christ to be saved. Now, these two points are not the only points of debate on the subject, um, but they appear quite often in discussions, as so they're nice knowing. So what about Calvinists on the atonement? Well, within the Reformed tradition, there have been three positions on the atonement. One, that Christ died only for the elect and in no way whatsoever for the non-elect. Two, that Christ died for especially the elect, but there's also a general aspect for all men. And then three, Christ died equally for all men. The third category would be considered what we call four-point Calvinism. And uh, many would say that four-point Calvinism is not actual Calvinism, or it's inconsistent Calvinism, or it's not really Reformed. And so that's a debate in itself. And if we make the Canons of Dort the standard, then uh, this four-point Calvinism would not be Calvinistic in the truest sense, um, for lack of a better term. So we're going to focus on point one and two then, because we're using the Canons of Dort and we're talking about limited atonement. So point one that Christ died only for the elect and in no way whatsoever for the non-elect is sometimes called strict limited atonement. Position two, that Christ died especially for the elect and that there is a general aspect for all men is called moderate or sometimes called moderate limited atonement. Now, where the Synod of Dort and other confessions fall tends to be debated, but as Kurt Daniel notes, they lean towards a strict limited atonement while allowing for a moderate limited atonement, and that's in Daniel Kurtz, uh, The History and Theology of Calvinism. Calvinists debate whether some figures, such as Calvin himself, held to a moderate or universal view. For example, uh, Calvin on Galatians 5.12 says, It is the will of God that we should seek the salvation of all men without exception, as Christ suffered for the sins of the whole world. End quote. On Colossians 1.14, John Calvin also said, Quote, by the sacrifice of his death, all the sins of the world have been expiated, end quote. And so you get it. Uh, Calvin's heavily debated on the point. And this kind of harkens back to that notion that we've talked about before, where if you're going to talk about a standard for Calvinism, it's not John Calvin, it's the cans of Dort, because that is when all the Calvinists got together and said, hey, this is what we believe. So there's that. Anyway, so Kurt Daniel also points out that moderate limited atonement, opposed to the strict view, appears to be the mainline position especially in classical Calvinism. Um, the more recent resurgence of Calvinism tends to be more strict and limited atonement, but the mainline view held that there is a universal aspect for all men, though Christ died primarily for the elect. Christ died for the world, but especially the elect. 
Um, Daniel demonstrates this in inciting Jonathan Edwards, Spurgeon, Baxter, Ryle, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and, and so forth, noting that they stress that Christ died for all men, but especially elect, or as Peter Lombard would state, Christ died sufficiently for all, but efficaciously only for the elect, end quote. So what this universal aspect is actually differs among the tradition, um, though many link it to both the general call, wherein it is the grounds for that genuine free gospel offer, but also that it is an extension of common grace, where people can be blessed by the work of Christ in some manner or another, whether it be through the church or some other means. Um, but a big component of this universal aspect is that Christ's dying for the world was also so that the entire creation would be restored and redeemed, right? So there is a sense in which the whole creation is being restored, and you see that in Romans 8, and this is a um, new creation culminating into the new heavens and new earth, and so there's a universal aspect there. But again, it is debated about what these universal aspects entail, and so that's worth noting if you're going to like talk with a Calvinist or something. So moving on from here, there is a close relationship between election and predestination uh, and this atonement and that God has chosen who will be saved and that God has worked in history to affect his will. And so the atonement doesn't need to go beyond the elect when it comes to salvation. God has a purpose of saving a particular people and he sends his son to save that particular people. For example, Ephesians 1 shows how closely knit God's election is for the purpose of making a holy and blameless people, and the atonement is the means by which God brings about this purpose of saving that people. While God has a general love for all of his creatures, there is a special love for Christ's bride that is not given to those who are not Christ's bride. Now, Calvinists will also point to texts such as John 10, 11, uh, which we examined on the point of particular grace, wherein Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. And according to verse 12 and 26, the unbelievers who are not of a sheep will not have his life on their behalf. The sheep does not give his life for goats or wolves, but those sheep whom he knows and who knows his voice. Now, when it comes to discussing uh, the moderate position, it will typically just utilize the language of 1 Timothy 4.10. Quote, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, end quote. The Calvinists will argue that Christ's death has a purpose and a guaranteed success, and that he secures the elect's salvation. Calvinists will sometimes stress this um, tie with calling and being a saint, and that Christ died for us, and Christ died for you know the people of God. But that isn't particularly helpful for this discussion, since both Calvinists and Arminians generally agree that the application of the atonement is limited. Um, so when it comes to objections um, against limited atonement, such as the false teachers who are bought in 2 Peter 2.1, and texts that speak about Christ dying for all of the world or for all, Calvinists have a variety of answers. Now, in the moderate limited atonement view, the solution is much simpler. Because as one can ascertain, the moderate position allows for one to both affirm a universal and particular scope of the atonement at the same time. This is also why some believe that Calvin held to a moderate position where he can say that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, but then also at other points he seems to stress that there's only a death for the elect. 
Now, at the same time, it's also noted that the word all in each text does not necessarily mean every person without exception, and that context really is the key. For example, in the Roman Empire, when Caesar summoned all for a census, this obviously does not mean all without exception, meaning the whole world, right? And there are also cases where all can mean all kinds of people, such as Jews and Gentiles. To use an illustration of this, in Mark 1.5, we read of all in the land of Judea and Jerusalem going out to hear John the Baptist and being baptized by him. But we know that this isn't literal, as Luke 7.30 notes that the Pharisees were not baptized by John, and we know that not literally all in the land of Judea and Jerusalem went out to hear John the Baptist. This is to say that the Calvinists will take each text on a case-by-case basis and may argue from the context that the term all or world doesn't necessarily mean every person without exception. And based off of texts like Mark 1.5 or Caesar summoning all uh, for the census, the ground floor argument that's sometimes posed to Calvinists that all means all is really insufficient in itself and there needs to be more discussions on the context of a particular text. Now, in the case of texts such as 1 John 2.2, which is considered the Achilles heel of uh, limited atonement, answers can really vary. Uh, And so we're not going to survey all the different answers, but Calvinists will point out that the world can also be limited in what is being referenced, especially in John's literature, where the apostle utilizes the term world or cosmos a number of ways. The most common answer is that this text about Jesus being the propitiation for our sins, but not only ours, but for the whole world, is John merely expanding this reality of the atonement beyond his immediate community of believers who are receiving this letter. So in essence, John is saying that Jesus is not only the propitiation for those in our community, those people that he's writing this letter to, but other people in the world. Now, ultimately, you'll find that the more strict, limited perspective will argue from a number of angles. But it's worth pointing out that through the moderate or classical position, texts such as 1 John 2.2 really um, isn't much of a problem because they affirm a universal aspect of the atonement. So what's our summary on the atonement? Well, our summary is simply this. On the position of the atonement, we find more variance in the Calvinist position than in the Arminian position. Yet the key distinction between Calvinism and Arminianism is that Arminianism says that Christ died equally for all men in the same way versus the Calvinists who say that Christ died for all men in some way, but he died particularly or effectively for the elect. Both of these positions flow from the other system's points that we have discussed this far. The extent of the atonement becomes a later domino in the line, and once an individual finds themselves aligning with Calvinists or Arminians on grace, the will, or predestination, they'll find their position on the atonement usually easily following. That said, there are a good number of four-point Calvinists, and they'll utilize the same basic um, arguments and points of contention as the Arminians whenever it comes to the scriptural arguments for a universal atonement. So that wraps up this episode. Like I said, it was a little bit shorter, and the next section on perseverance of the saints will also be a little bit shorter because, again, like limited atonement, it logically follows from the other points of the system. And so if you're going to discuss Calvinism and Arminianism, All of the real debate is going to go back to these other points. So that said, until next time, God bless you all. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. We're getting really close to wrapping up this series. And um, if you are a patron, I will be editing and polishing up the the show notes for you and formatting them to make them look more pretty and make sure there's not typos and making it more clear, maybe expanding a little bit here and there. 
Um, so if you are a patron, you can go pick those up. If you are not a patron, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Christ the Cure. Patrons help support the show, um, help us move forward. And so over the summer, I hope to do a patron exclusive course. Um, we've done a couple of patron exclusive courses, but we're going to add a new one this summer. And then early episodes for the fall will start dropping sometime in the summer for patrons as well. So God bless you all and have a very great week.